The Democratic National Convention is going strong in Philadelphia, with the party emphasizing unity to defeat Donald Trump in November. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll get an update from the convention and find out whether disagreements have been snuffed out and delegates are ready to line up in support of Hillary Clinton. We'll also turn to a couple of veteran Arizona Democrats to get their views on the convention and what impact it could have on candidates' hopes here. I'll check in with former legislative leader Art Hamilton and media strategist Bob Grossfeld. Plus, Christine Jones is coming on strong with ads in the race to win the Republican nomination in the state's 5th Congressional District. And a new poll shows Jones leading former Senate President Andy Biggs, who's been endorsed by retiring Congressman Matt Salmon. We'll get an update on that race. Also, the Mesa Arts Center is introducing unique ways to increase students' critical literacy. And how connected is Arizona to the original McDonald's restaurants? Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, a new article in The New Yorker weighs in on whether Latinos will affect election outcomes in Arizona this year. I'll talk with the writer, Hector Tobar. Plus, Christine Jones is coming on strong with ads in the race to win the Republican nomination in the state's 5th Congressional District. We'll talk about a recent poll and who seems to have momentum. Also, the Mesa Arts Center is introducing unique ways to increase students' critical literacy. We start today's program with the Democratic National Convention. Former President Bill Clinton spoke last night, and tonight we'll hear from President Barack Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, and Vice Presidential nominee Tim Kaine. With me to talk about the convention and what's next are political consultant Bob Grossfeld of the Media Guys and former state legislative leader Art Hamilton of the Art Hamilton Group. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being here. A pleasure. Good to be here, Steve. Bob, let me start with you about your reaction to the first couple of days of this convention. Monday morning, looked like uh, even though unity was the message, that might not carry through. What are you feeling after the first couple of days? Oh, it, it's the things have come back together. Uh, you know, it, it, everybody kind of went nuts that first night and going, oh, my God, the Sanders people are going to destroy the place and, and go away and never come back. And I was sitting there going, well, they're Democrats. I mean, don't people understand this is, this is just what's normal is uh, going through the first day, things are going to be messy. Got to the second day, got, uh, you know, Mrs. Obama just, I mean, just knocked the place down. And then by last night, uh, it was just, I, I got, I was sitting there having a really hard time not sobbing during most of it. Uh, I mean, most of the stories that they were telling were very, very touching. And, and you got to uh, President Clinton at the end, who just, really wrapped it up. Yeah, our general thoughts in the first couple nights. I, I have the same thoughts as Bob. I thought uh, the first night was uh, Democrats needed to do what Democrats absolutely are required to do, and that's have a very difficult time getting started. But I agree that uh, Michelle Obama, I think, set a tone that changed the direction of, of the uh, convention as I thought she would. And frankly, uh, I think there on it's been a, a, not only a good convention, but I thought a fairly way above average convention in that they really do understand that uh, they have a common goal and that there is there is serious risk in the country if they can't pull it together. And I, frankly, have also been impressed with how Bernie Sanders has stepped up to the plate. As a former delegate, how important do you think these conventions are, um, even as just a, a TV event of sorts? For a lot of people who who are not junkies as many of us are, they're not really following the whole campaign. It's maybe the first time they've ever even heard of Tim Kaine, for example. Well, again, I think the conventions, despite all of the uh, uh, confusion on occasion, are incredibly important. The party, I think, needs to come together. It needs to affirm uh, uh, the person that is going to represent it as president or for persons for president and vice president. And it needs to go through the, 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 the bleeding off 
of some of what's going on in the primary. I think uh, certainly one that the Democratic Party comes out of this convention or will come out of it, in my judgment, a, a great deal more connected and cohesive than it was going in. Bob, you certainly have not been silent on uh, social media, your feelings about Donald Trump, the Republican nominee. Do you think that the Democrats have a cohesive enough message to have something that is more than just, boy, we think this other guy's pretty scary? Yeah, I think I think they do now. Yeah. Uh, leading into the convention, I really wasn't sure about that uh, because it was so easy to to look at Trump and go, this guy's, to quote his the guy who actually wrote his story, uh, a sociopath is what he's described him as. Uh, and that it was just unbelievable that this guy would come out of, you know, you know Trump Tower and, and some wacko TV program uh, to even be close to, not, not the Oval Office, be close to Washington. Uh, and, and what happened is, I, I think, you know, watching him, his growth, so to speak, uh, you know, people started figuring it out. This is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... That's that's the corner I think people have to have to turn. The worst thing, I mean, the worst enemy the Democrats have right now is disbelief. That will do them in. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? As far as the idea of when, what are some of the ideas you think Democrats should be emphasizing? In addition to saying, you know, maybe maybe having this guy in the White House is not a great idea. My judgment is, is this. I think you can organize uh, people, get them excited, and and get them into the, a very active mode by making them afraid and fearful and the belief that somehow uh, the, the sky is falling. Or you can attempt to tell people that with work and cooperation that we, in fact, can, can cooperatively make the place better. That, at times, is a much more difficult message because fear is an incredible motivator. But But I think over the long haul, what I believe will serve best is that if we come out of this convincing people or at least giving them the belief that there is, in fact, a possibility that, in fact, we can live up to our ideals and we don't need to turn on one another and we don't need to divide the country in order to uh, in order to succeed. I think what we saw earlier was a party uh, on the other side that decided they would play the game of, of division and subtraction. What I hope comes out of Philadelphia is that the party that is now meeting, the Democratic Party, decides to play the business of of addition and multiplication. It's KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein talking about the Democratic National Convention and what's next with Art Hamilton of the Art Hamilton Group and Bob Grossfeld of the Media Guys. One thing that certainly is important, uh, Democrats have done well in presidential elections in recent years and less well, let's say, when it comes to congressional races. Bob, let me start with you on this. How important do you think this is to make sure that um, voter turnout is up, that people are excited about their local and congressional candidates and not just backing Hillary Clinton? Because that, that can be a problem, or at least it has been in recent elections. Yeah, uh, it's massively important. Uh, and the the goal right now is to basically recreate the Obama victories, which uh, had had some effect in Arizona. Uh, and now, the, I think the potential is for significant uh, effect given, I mean, we've all been saying this for years, waiting for the Latino vote to really emerge. I think this is the year. I mean, they've been beaten up 
uh, and and uh, Trump is a really good reason for them to vote. But there are some worries, Art, in some areas about voter suppression efforts. This is the, the first time in Arizona that the Voting Rights Act will no longer uh, impact things. Um, how do you think that could factor in in terms of in terms of turnout, in terms of whether it's African-American voters or Latino voters? I, I think it's a two-edged sword. I think it can have a negative effect on turnout if we let it, or I think it become the thing that, be, that we use to motivate people to actually get involved and understand what is at risk. Part of why I think so many people... I think kind of were disinterested is because they believed that what we had achieved in terms of the Voting Rights Act was achieved permanently. Mm. It was never going to change. It couldn't be taken away. I think we all know very much to our own chagrin and embarrassment that, that with Supreme Court rulings and other things, what you think you've gained is in fact sub- subject to being taken away if you're not careful and if you're not attentive. I agree with Bob. I think we, we've learned that we need to stay engaged if we're going to make change permanent to any degree. And I think it is the best motivator we have. Is what happened on March 22nd with the presidential preference election and seeing all those people in line for hours, is that a lasting memory for folks to keep them involved? Oh, I think it's a lasting memory uh, to keep people involved. But more importantly, I I think it's a lasting memory that people will have in terms of helping to understand why not being involved in the process or why not making sure that they understand the difference it makes who they elect locally affects their right to the franchise. I don't think that the debacle that was the primary in those long lines and people out there in in the heat or out there in the dark is something that's going to negatively affect Republicans, Democrats, or independents. It's going to affect the body politic. And I think because of that, over the long haul, it can be a positive because people, I think, got a clear indication of what happens when they're not paying attention. Bob, what about people who are not as educated about the system and are not those high-efficacy voters? You mentioned how do you think this could be the year for Latinos to really have the impact. Um, Registration has gone way up, but is there... And there's even the legislation that could affect ballot collecting. And is that something that could impact the number of votes that are counted and, and who votes and whatnot? How concerned are you about making sure that young people not only get the message, but then follow up? And it's not just, you know, not just going out and, and perhaps taking part in rallies and protests, but actually filling out the ballot. Oh, always concerned. Okay. The, the hope I have is that we've seen a, a significant progression in the use of the vote by mail or early voting. Right. Uh, which is the answer to all of these other problems and the the efforts to get people signed up for uh, the the permanent vote by mail list uh, have been okay they haven't been at the level that we need them to be in order to really make all these other problems go away mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's probably the best single answer I can think of are there certain races you guys are watching especially closely in Arizona? I mean, are, obviously, the Senator John McCain race expected to run against Representative Ann Kirkpatrick. Um, and before I actually go to that, I had one other convention question I did want to ask you guys. We made a, a big thing about um, Senators Flake and McCain and many others, of course, not attending the RNC. Is it significant that Representatives Sinema and Kirkpatrick are not at the DNC in your eyes? Well, well in my judgment, no. I don't know why Representative Sinema didn't attend. I assume she may be home tending to politics. But I think with, 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 with Representative Kirkpatrick, she's here doing her very best to make uh, John McCain's life more difficult. And, and frankly, uh, it might have been seen by some as not the most efficacious use of her time to be in Philadelphia 
uh, trying to eat one of those Philly sandwiches <laughs> and not just in the state trying to get a few more people to come her way. Yeah, she could probably get one of those around here. It's probably not as good, but it's probably similar. Knowing Bob, Arizona, <laughs> I think it's probably better. <laughs> yeah, Bob, what are your thoughts on that? Is, that? is this just people are busy with politics? Uh, yeah. it's And, you know, it, it's a time commitment. It's expensive. And I, I think depending on, on where they're at, they don't get much out of it. But larger than that, mm-hmm. and something I really uh, feel – a, uh, incumbent upon me to at least get this out there. I have believed for months that this election is basically going to come down to people are going to be faced with a choice. And the choice is, do I dislike Hillary Clinton more than I'm afraid of Donald Trump? And at the end of the day, I think that's where we wind up. Okay. And which way do you think they're going to lean? Hopefully, hopefully not disliking uh, Hillary that much. Uh, there, there are more, and every day there's coming out reasons to to be concerned about Trump. This morning, the the uh, Art and I were talking about this. The information about uh, the Russians doing a, a hack on the Democratic Party, and then, and then uh, Trump coming out this morning, going, "Hey, you know, I'm going to call Putin. I'll I'll see if we can get them to release more of them." I, I mean, it's just breathtakingly. I mean, stupid. I mean, um, it, it does seem this is something we've never heard from presidential nominees before. I can't imagine it, it's happened. And that's why I think the important thing for the Democratic Party to do now is, is really to forget about its need to appeal to just its base. Mm-hmm. The, the growth of independence, I think, have changed the body politic, I think, probably permanently. We need to express to the independents and I think Republicans uh, as well, that we believe when all is said and done, we offer the best possibility for positive change in the country. I simply, because I guess I'm just old, refuse to believe. You're, you're hurting that, my demo now. Oh, I understand, but I refuse <laughs> to believe that, that the only way to be successful is to tell people that we are helpless and we are hopeless and that there is no future unless we elect any one person. I think this whole thing is, is something that we ought to have learned from and frankly, if I could tell you in a word what I think we ought to do, we ought to convince folks that it's morning in America again. And without the without the U, which I think was used by a Democrat as well. Some people, the way Donald Trump is talking, they're saying it's M-O-U-R-N instead of M-O-R-N. That's correct. Guys, as we wrap this up, though, I did want to bring it back a little bit to Arizona. Um, any races that you're watching closely you think might be impacted? Because we keep hearing about how Trump is going to be this, this negative drag potentially. Um, any Democrats you think are sort of on the fence that that with a negative attitude toward Trump might help, Bart? Well, I, I'm not sure that, that the negative toward Trump helps or hurts, but I believe the Kirkpatrick race for the Senate is a race that most people historically would have said there is absolutely no chance. It's just kind of a wasted race. I think that's a horse race, and I believe she not only can win it, but very well may win it. And is that? do you think part of that is, is John McCain's weaknesses or Donald Trump or Anne Kirkpatrick's strengths? I, I don't think it's in either of those. I think it's all. I think, I think she is a great candidate. I think John McCain has had his own issues in the party. And, but I think, frankly, Trump's going to be a drag on the world. Bob, your thoughts on this? I agree. Uh, I have, I mean, over the years I've watched McCain just rise to the occasion uh, and be who he presents himself to be. And that's gone. Uh, it's just not there anymore, and I, I don't know what his positioning is now other than he's fending off Anchor Patrick, uh, and that's the, that's the strategy of a loser. 
And one quick final question about Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who's also had his, his doings, and we're not sure how Judge Snow is going to decide on some of these things. Did having his, seeing his face at the Republican National Convention help or hurt him in Arizona, or nothing? Well, I think it probably helped him with his friends, and it reinforced the pain in his adversaries. Okay. Bob, your thoughts on that? I think he was there to consult with Mr. Trump about how to deal with criminals and probably brought a whole bag of uh, pink underwear. Bob Grossfeld with the sarcastic wing of the program. <laughs> Bob Grossfeld, the media guys, Bob, thanks. Art Hamilton, former state legislative leader and the Art Hamilton Group. Thank, Art, thank you, Steve. you. Thank you. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Arizona's 5th Congressional District race is without an incumbent since Congressman Matt Salmon has decided not to seek another term. Four candidates on the Republican side are running to claim the safe GOP seat. Andy Biggs, Christine Jones, Justin Olson, and Don Stapley. TV ads featuring Jones have been running frequently in recent weeks, but Biggs received Salmon's endorsement and was considered the presumptive frontrunner. A recent poll, though, shows Jones surging ahead. With me to talk about that is Mike Noble of MBQF Consulting and OH Predictive Insights, who did the poll. Mike, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on. So from the poll you conducted in early June, Christine Jones has jumped into the lead. She's gone from 7% support to 26% in the latest. What explains the surge? I mean, we're seeing ads everywhere. Has that had an impact? Uh, That had an impact, uh, the spending. And also, I think probably the biggest thing, I I think we would point to her 19-point shift in the last seven weeks is that is her message. I mean, her message of being uh, not only an outsider, but and she's also the only uh, female in the race. So it just clearly what the, you know, she is spending money, but you can spend a lot of money in races and not really move a lot of points. But she clearly, I mean, uh, you looked at the poll, I mean, you look at Stapley and Olson, they moved only five points, four points, respectively each, um, bigs down only two, and then she went up 19. So clearly uh, the message is, 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 is resonating. And what about name recognition? Because people saw a lot of ads that she ran when she was trying to get the GOP gubernatorial nomination. Do you think people remember her in part because of her ads, in part because she was in this race, in part, as you mentioned, she's the only woman? Yeah, I think it's all those factors. And and I think there is definitely a residual effect when you have folks, uh, especially when you spend uh, the balance she did, I think it was roughly, what, $5 million um, statewide. And, you know, so carrying that over into this into this election, I mean, definitely is a an added boost. So I think folks would probably, she would probably have stronger name ID than, let's say, a state rep or a state senator. Does this indicate to you at all, Mike, that the initial bump and bounce that Andy Biggs got from the Matt Salmon endorsement, uh, has that sort of leveled off? Um, what, what would Biggs have to do to to increase his possibility of winning this race? Start spending money. (laughs) (laughs) They really haven't, you know, they've done a great job on the endorsements. They got, you know, like Club for Growth, Powerhouse, uh, you know, they come in doing their kind of expenditures, uh, and then some some of the uh, Freedom Works. The thing is, though, is that they really haven't spent much money, and Christine, you know, has definitely been spending money earlier, and, and I think it's because of the logistical challenge of the race. I mean, when you're a traditional candidate and you're not able to really stroke a large check, you have to not only raise those funds, pay for overhead, but also pay for messaging. If you're able to just cut a check and go up on messaging day one and just keep hammering the airwaves, it it gives you a a big advantage. And I think you're seeing that in the polling. Now, CD5 is considered obviously a very safe Republican district. Could you label it though, Mike, in your opinion, is is it a moderate Republican district or a very conservative one? Very conservative. When, when we go and look at our demographic taps, 
uh, when looking at uh, AZO5, I mean, the bulk of the, the, the Republicans over there are either very conservative or somewhat conservative. And CD5, also a district that has a big LDS population, and you did some stuff in your poll. You broke that down as well. What did you find in terms of support based on religion? Uh, well, yeah, then this is the thing that you're seeing, that uh, it's because of the, the current matchup, too, that is really benefiting Jones right now, because you have Andy Biggs and Don Stapley are clearly doing, they're basically splitting the LDS vote out there right now. And But the thing is, a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, LDS is a large group out there, they're very tight-knit, although there is a very large uh, Christian evangelical population, Catholic and Protestant, and she is doing extremely well in all three of those categories. Mike, finally, to leave the poll for a moment, um, <laughs> there are some people who, who used to think that newspaper endorsements were a big deal, and uh, maybe maybe people are more skeptical about that now, but the Arizona Republic this morning endorsed Justin Olson. Do you expect him to get any bounce from that? Slightly, uh, you know, and I, I don't mean this as, as much offense. It's just, folks, it has changed so, so much of how folks have been getting their information. And before, I'd say 10, 20 years ago, newspaper was one of the few and only outlets. Now you have you have blogs, you have Twitter, you have all these other uh, avenues. And, you know, I, I think maybe it will be a slight bounce, but I don't think that it's going to be anything significant. I mean, he's currently sitting at 9% right now. And, you know, you got to get more than the other guy. And I think Christine's at 26 Bigs at 19, Stapley at 15, and yet only 31 out this, uh, undecided out there right now. And, and Mike, very briefly, with early ballots going out next week, um, is there someone you think, do you think Christine Jones does have the advantage now? I'd say as of, as of today, yes, uh, although I think with these folks, you know, knowing that about 70, 72% of the total vote is going to vote early, so this election is going to be done probably in the next three weeks. And, you know, they, you know, I think there's probably sounding the alarm bells and, you know, this race is going to get very, uh, very fast and furious, I think, because, uh, you know, everyone's going to start unloading their money because they have to. If not, because, you know, currently, as of right now, I mean, she's she's sitting in a very strong position. Mike Noble of MBQF Consulting and OH Predictive Insights. We've been talking about his fifth congressional district poll on the GOP side. Mike, thanks. Thank you so much. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The power of Latino voters has been speculated upon for a number of elections, especially in Arizona. Efforts have been made to register more Latinos and get them passionately involved and interested in casting votes in November. But to this point, their impact hasn't been felt in a concrete election-deciding way. In his new story for The New Yorker, titled Can Latinos Swing Arizona?, Hector Tobar explores what might change that and which people at the grassroots level may drive it. Hector, before we dig into your piece, how do you see Arizona when it comes to conditions for and treatment of Latino residents? The story of Latinos, uh, Mexican-Americans especially, uh, and Mexicanos in Arizona is really similar to that in the rest of the United States. You know, this uh, history of people um, with long roots uh, in the community and also people who've migrated in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, um, building institutions, uh, trying to defend their rights uh, against um, a larger sort of institutional structure that um, either sees them as marginal or, and sometimes as a threat. 
And so people have um, patiently and sometimes uh, with great sacrifice, you know, built organizations to stand up for their rights and something very similar to that uh, the struggles that have occurred in other parts of the United States. In your piece for The New Yorker, one of the people here in Arizona that you focused on is Petra Falcone. I'm curious, what did you find especially interesting about her experiences, and, and why did you want some of the piece at least to focus on her? What really intrigued me about Petra is her a very long history of struggle in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area. Uh, she's someone whose family uh, goes back to Phoenix in the 1940s, and in a certain sense, her story is the story of you know, Mexican-Americans in the Southwest. So her family moves to uh, Glendale when it's still mostly an agricultural community. Her brothers work in the fields uh, near what's now, of course, uh, you know, stadium where Super Bowls have been held, um, then strawberry and watermelon patches. And, uh, and it goes all the way up to the present, to, the, to this time when we have you know, new waves of Mexican immigrants arriving. Uh, Petra's family is, is actually from Texas. You know, she's, a, uh, she's proud of saying that she's a fourth-generation Arizonan. So I like that aspect of her story, that it contained all of this history of, of Phoenix and Arizona uh, and, and its Latino community that a lot of people don't really know about. And late in the piece, uh, there's what indicates perhaps a potential generation gap between Petra and some others on a, on a particular issue. Did that seem like um, a real concrete, perhaps, difference there between her and, and others? And did you see it as a generation gap? Oh, absolutely. You know, I was already uh, had been working on the piece for several weeks um, when uh, I found the Arizona Republic a story about, um, about Petra signing this uh, document um, signed by other Catholic leaders, um, essentially denouncing gay marriage and uh, also, uh, abortion, uh, abortion rights, and so I, I felt um, I, I was I was sort of surprised. I didn't know that Petra had those views, but it also seemed to me very um, very indicative of where a, a certain portion of the Latino community is, a community that's very Catholic, and how that um, there is this inherently socially conservative streak uh, in the Latino community in Arizona and elsewhere. And um, so I it, I was actually kind of caught by surprise uh, by that. Let me continue with, with the sort of generation gap theme a little bit, because uh, you even refer to the Gang of Eight. Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake from Arizona were involved in that as far as so-called comprehensive immigration reform. Is there a generation gap as far as that goes from your perspective as well? Are there perhaps, and I'm, obviously we're not going to blanket statement everybody here, but are there more Latinos, let's say in their 40s and 50s, who think, hmm, comprehensive reform with potential path to citizenship, that sounds okay, but those who are maybe in their 20s and teens think, no, 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 that's not. Right, exactly. Just like you have this generation gap in terms of, uh, you know, gay and lesbian uh, rights and gay marriage, a lot of young Latinos really identify as progressive and they identify uh, with, with civil rights, uh, with civil rights for gay people. Uh, in the same vein, uh, a lot of younger Latino people are uh, really demanding that uh, an immigration reform include everyone who can be included, everyone who they believe deserves uh, a path to citizenship. Uh, whereas I think a lot of people who are older, uh, who are more willing to make compromises, would see something like the Gang of Eight um, reforms, those compromises, as something they'd be willing to accept. Um, you know, we see this now uh, in Phoenix and elsewhere. There's a young brand of militant activists who... Uh, believe that this is uh, an incredibly important cause to Latino families, and uh, and they believe that they they believe in taking actions like blocking streets, 
and, you know, and doing other things that are direct actions to express how important these issues are to them. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Talking with Hector Tobar, we're talking about his new story for The New Yorker titled Can Latinos Swing Arizona? Hector, how much of the push to get more Latinos registered and more Latinos to the polls revolves specifically around Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the desire to beat him? I think that it's a very important element uh, in the story, but not the only one. I think that uh, just a frustration, too, with the uh, SB 1070 and the administration of Jan Brewer. This is something that has been uh, brewing, excuse the pun, uh, in Arizona for about a decade now. Uh, uh, the sense that um, that the Latino community is under threat uh, by various uh, politicos, not just Sheriff Arpaio, not just uh, then Governor Jan Brewer, uh, or, or Russell Pierce, the state senator who backed uh, SB 1070, that essentially that the Republican Party has appealed to its base with very strongly anti-illegal immigrant uh, measures that tend to target immigrants in general. And so I think that there is a, a, a general sense of resistance and that voter registration is a key element in the community's resistance to those policies. Based on the Republican National Convention last week, uh, Sheriff Arpaio spoke. Of course, Donald Trump was there as the as the nominee of the Republican Party. Is Trump and is some of Trump's rhetoric reminiscent to some Latinos of the sheriff? And could that be an inspiration for more Latinos to vote? Arpaio and Trump have long been allies. Arpaio was a very strong early supporter uh, of Donald Trump. Um, they they both shared a concern about President Obama's birth certificate and Sheriff Arpaio investigated it, and Trump uh, saluted him for that. So this is something that um, is um, obviously a, a strong alliance, and it scares uh, Latino people. It scares Latino people in Arizona and elsewhere. Um, I think that the, the prospect of a Trump presidency, um, this is a candidate who began his campaign with a screed against Latino immigrants. The prospect of that, of, of that particular leader as president is terrifying. Uh, to, to a lot of Latino people, whether they be fourth, fifth generation, or recently arrived immigrants. Hector, is there a danger, and I think certainly in, in recent years, people and analysts in general have tried not to create this this monolith of Latino voters, not to say that every Latino agrees on every subject, of course, because no, no group of people does. But do you think there is a a pretty consistent push when it comes to these issues related to the Border Patrol or illegal immigration uh, more generally, that a great percentage of Latinos agree on, or is that also a generational difference? I think that what's happened has been that since Proposition 187 passed uh, in California uh, in the mid-1990s, there's been a wave of anti-immigrant, anti-illegal immigrant legislation all across the United States. And this has slowly unified the Latino community. If you look at polls now, only 14% or less of Latinos are considering voting for Donald Trump. I mean, this is, uh, you know, a the Republican Party has effectively united all the different nationalities, all the different kinds of people that form the Latino community. And uh, and so this is not something that the Latino community has chosen. It really has been thrust upon them. Uh, you know, I think what happens is that the, the rhetoric of the Republican Party is aimed at illegal immigrants. But in painting illegal immigrants as criminals, they use this broad brush that many people believe is absolutely unfair to undocumented immigrants, because undocumented immigrants tend to be hardworking people. And so when you hear politicians repeat again and again 
that illegal immigrants are responsible for crime and rape and murder, it is utterly offensive to us, and it causes, has caused us to unite uh, increasingly as a people. We've been talking about the story for The New Yorker titled Can Latinos Swing Arizona with its writer, Hector Tobar. Hector, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll hear about Project Lit being put together by the Mesa Arts Center. Quick news update. Tempe police say a gunman that had barricaded himself inside a senior center died from a gunshot wound. Police say the suspect barricaded himself at Westchester Senior Center at Rural and Guadalupe Roads after shooting at a police officer earlier this morning. The officer is okay. We'll have more details coming up this afternoon from Bruce Drummond. In the meantime, stay with us on Here and Now. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Educators and parents, among others, have grown more concerned in recent years about student literacy. A lot of that is focused on the strict definition of literacy as the ability to read and write. Now the Mesa Arts Center is launching a new program called Project Lit, igniting critical literacy through the arts. And with me to talk about that are the Mesa Arts Center's Director of Engagement, Mandy Tripoli, and Tomas Stanton, Director and Co-Founder of Phonetic Spit, a literary arts organization. He's involved in implementing some aspects of Project Lit. Mandy, where does the foundation for Project Lit come from, and what are the aims? So for about the past five years, we've been working in schools, and we wanted to take a look at some of the things we were hearing as kind of outputs of the work that we were doing. And it ended up being that a lot of these students were creating 21st century learning skills, that they were, we were creating a safe place for them to come. So uh, Tomas, um, my colleague here, worked with me in programming uh, with our spoken word program, and we thought, let's be more intentional about this. And so for the past year, we looked at developing a framework for engagement uh, to really thoughtfully engage K through 12 populations uh, through the arts and igniting these critical literacies that we had been seeing. When it comes to building a program like this, how many different opportunities are there? Because obviously kids are going to learn in a different way. So what are you looking for to see what they can grasp and jump in on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the things that's, I think the foundational aspect, no matter where you're at, is to create the safe space, um, to really um, engage the youth into taking agency and ownership of the space that they're in, to really get them to buy into the concept that this is their space, that yes, we are in school, and school has a traditional framework and a setting, but this is their opportunity to kind of let us know what it is that they want to engage in, what do they want to talk about, what are they interested in, and really get them to own that that space that they're in. And without that, none of the work is really possible. Um, so it really starts with that safe space. And what about a comfort level, too? Is there, I mean, are these kids in a lot of cases, I'm not saying all, but in a lot of cases where they're sort of waiting for that creativity to burst out and no one's kind of given them that encouragement, is that part of this? It is. Yeah. I mean, they, they, we, I mean, and I don't want to say, I don't want to make a generalized statement that, you know, education these days doesn't challenge our students to be critical thinkers or to be independent thinkers. Right. But in a lot of cases, um, and it's not that the, it's not that the teachers aren't equipped to do this, but you know, there's, there's standards, there's objectives, and they have goals that they need to reach and they can't do it all in a day. Right. So, uh, a lot of what they're, the, 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 the teachers' roles are are to get the the students up to speed with with the standards and 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 you know the more traditional educational setting, which doesn't lend itself 
um, to a lot of critical thinking and creativity. Um, and that's where the arts and the integration of the arts really does play a huge factor. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we, we do see that these arts programs, there isn't, I don't want to say they're being taken out of schools mm-hmm. so much. I want to say that um, there's just not enough time in the school day to focus on it all. And that's where this this project and teaching artists and community partners really um, play such a, a, an intricate role in working with educators to provide this type of curriculum and roadmap for, for students. Mandy, are you seeing the same kind of things that Tomas is talking about? Is that why you wanted to do this? Definitely. I, I think the arts have always provided a platform for igniting other disciplines. Uh, so we're just taking advantage of that um, and really showcasing what the arts can do to activate these literacies. Um, so we, we have found that going into schools with our theater programs, that children come out of their shells a little bit more, that there's certain key standards and listening and speaking that the arts are really able to highlight. And so we're coming in as a, a resource also to teachers. Do kids in, in groups, once they're able to sort of blossom a little bit, are they more inclined to work with others who, even if they're not in the exact same creative plane, they're sort of seeing each other and reading each other in different ways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the most important things when we're talking about critical literacy, so a lot of people say, well, w- what are critical literacies, right? And so more traditional literacies, reading, writing, and speaking, um, critical literacies would be emotional, social, social, and cultural literacies um, amongst 21st century learning to um, working groups and things like that. And so what happens in these programs is that we create this space for individuality to really uh, be shown in a space where we're, we're, we're looking at our differences, not in a negative, not through a negative lens, but in a saying, hey, you know, this is an individual, this is their experience, this is what they've been through, and this is what I've been through, and how do we find the similarities, right? And so that's, you know, building off of like social um, and cultural literacies. And so what happens is, is through this safe space, you start to see students start to um, be more accepting Um, developing empathy and making connections through the arts um, that otherwise wouldn't have been made um, because, like I said, the space just isn't, it isn't there for them to be able to do that. So Yeah, and are students meeting the types of people maybe they wouldn't have had a chance to meet in in sort of everyday activity, but when you get in that creative space, it's, I mean, that's another light bulb that's got to go off. I mean, Mm -hmm. for some of us, it happens later in life. Some of us, it happens when we get to go to college, but if you start at that younger age, that must be amazing. It is. It's, It's so important to developing we we speak a lot in 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 the world you know where we want to see a change and and we can all you know agree to disagree or argue about you know what direction we need to go into but like no matter what across the board like uh, being able to look through a different lens uh, to be able to see somebody not necessarily for their differences as a negative thing but as a positive thing is so important to to creating the change that we want to see and so when you're able to reach these students at such a young age and start to develop these emotional social and cultural literacies um, it really just equips them for when they do get into the higher educational settings whether it be high school or college, they're more equipped to be able to have those conversations, to think critically about it, and then to take those conversations um, and their ideas and actually implement plans to create change into the world. Well, with critical thinking, is there a right or wrong answer? Is it more about helping people figure out the way to, it's not like saying, okay, we're going to tell you this is right or wrong. We want you to think about why you think it might be right or wrong. 
Yeah, it is. It, it's it's amazing, right? Because in more uh, old school, traditional educational settings, it's about um, the educator possessing all of the knowledge, all of the knowledge, right? And the students being these empty vessels, and we're just there to deposit all of our knowledge into these empty vessels, and they're so lucky to have us, right? And actually, they're not empty vessels. They come to us no matter what age they are, with their own experiences, um, their own personalities, their own uh, viewpoints in life. And if we can actually create this space where the teacher and student role is, it transfers, mm-hmm. right? So I, with spoken word poetry, is an easy an example. We say whoever has the microphone is the teacher. Whoever is up sharing their story is the teacher at that moment. And that allows me as the adult in the room and the, you know, the person who is viewed as the teacher to sit down in their chair and actually learn from them. And when you can create that space where we're all learning from each other, um, it it does kind of eliminate this right or wrong this binary of black and white you know because the world is full of gray spaces and and one of the things we say is like you don't necessarily have to agree with this other person saying but that doesn't mean that it has to be confrontational right agree to disagree have critical dialogue on why you disagree and maybe you might find a happy medium those are just the type of environments that we're hoping to activate. I mean, this is some of the powerful programming that's getting to happen through uh, these collaborations and partnerships. And, you know, we hope every classroom has an opportunity to, for students to see themselves as leaders and that they have something that they're bringing to the table. Um, So it's it's a a beautiful environment uh, that we are only hoping to perpetuate more. And Tomas, we've had you on before to talk about um, phonetic spit and the work you've done with that. But I want to look good on a little bit of a list here. Literacy through improv, of course, the literacy through spoken word, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. literacy through drama, literacy through performance, literacy through hip hop. What are your thoughts about what they all have in common? Yeah, I think what we really did was intentionally look at uh, the the individual and respective platforms, um, which these you just listed them off. And we wanted to see what age demographic we felt like best fit within in that platform, right? Um, for example, um, spoken word poetry is something that is a little more advanced, right? And so, you know, about middle school is, is kind of the lowest age you want to go there because we are asking students to think critically about um, social topics and, you know, current events and historical events that they need to have some kind of, it's very scaffold learning. Um, with our human rights program in the, the uh, literacy through improv, um, the perfect age range for that is fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, right? Because they're at that kind of wonky age where it's okay to be silly and you know they haven't quite meet that seven that seventh and eighth grade where they have to pretend like they're you know super cool and things like that and then you know with the literacy through drama right we're, we're looking at k through third grade they all really do work intentionally to where they scaffold themselves up and the cool thing about the the project is that the project has an overarching framework so all of the programs, no matter what their respective platforms are, are all operating under the same curriculum map and are, are addressing, you know, the same types of literacies just in their own respective way with their own age demographic. Tomas Stanton and Mandy Tripoli, we've been talking about the Mace Arts Center's new project, Lit, Igniting Critical Literacy Through the Arts. Thank you both for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. 
burgers, fries, and shakes. All of those probably come to mind when you think of McDonald's restaurants. And a lot of us of a certain generation identified the company with San Diego, where longtime owner Ray Kroc settled. But a new piece in Phoenix Magazine called Mac Daddy indicates the Valley's connection to the burger chain goes back a long way. And with me to talk about that is the article's writer, Carrie Duen Cornelius. Carrie Duen, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Steve. So before we get specifically to Phoenix's connection, I want a little bit of background, because I think we probably all think we know about McDonald's. But how did it really get started? What era are we talking about? And why are the McDonald's, whose name is on the restaurant, not actually involved in the company? Sure. So the McDonald's brothers, Mac and Dick, were um, from New Hampshire. And it was during the 1930s when, you know, as many Americans couldn't find jobs because of the, uh, the Great Depression, they decided to move west. And they had dreams of becoming Hollywood producers. And like many people with Hollywood dreams, they had to fall back on the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. So they opened the original McDonald's, which was called McDonald's Famous Barbecue in 1940. And that one served things that we would not expect a McDonald's to serve, like slow roasted ribs and tamales. And it was one of those places where they, you drive up your car and the car hops serve you in their skirts and, and boots and things. Um, but uh, so eventually, um, Ray Kroc, who, who was their milkshake uh, salesman, came in and, and bought the, the franchise rights and eventually the real estate rights, and eventually the right to the company and their name. And so that's why they're not, they're not known as that anymore. Now, there's a lot of great background in your piece, but one of the things that surprised me, and this is a, kind of the basis of the piece, is how the first franchise ended up in Phoenix. But this was not, this was not a Ray Kroc decision, right? This was before Kroc took over? This was before Ray Kroc took over. So uh, basically what happened is in, in 1948 uh, or so, the, the brothers discovered that most of their customers were ordering hamburgers. They weren't ordering the slow-roasted stuff. And so they decided to completely re uh, revolutionize the restaurant. And they took a page from, from Henry Ford's assembly line production for making cars. And so they, they had grill men and fry men and shake men. And they, they industrialized the, the entire restaurant by creating these machines that would form the patties or squirt the mustard and the lazy Susan where you could dress 24 hamburgers at the same time. And um, they just they created this speedy service system that was a self-service system um, where they could pay their, their, their uh, employees the littlest amount possible. You could get your hamburgers in 30 seconds and it was only 15 cents. Um, so, so it was just very much emblematic of the time that people wanted speed. They wanted a low price. And, um, and then they eventually decided to, to franchise. And um, they, they sought out franchisees. And the, the first person to step up to the plate was uh, a guy from Phoenix named Neil Fox, who worked for General Petroleum Corporation. So he had no fast food experience, no restaurant experience <laughs> at all. He knew the gasoline business, which is actually kind of a benefit because he knew where people drove and where people, you know, congregated. Right. So he was the one to, to first buy it. And, um, and at, at the time, no one could really make any money in, in franchising, but uh, he bought the franchise rights for, for $1,000. And in uh, 1953, he opened the first McDonald's franchise, um, in, which is in Phoenix at Central Avenue and Indian School Road. And it was also the first one to have the, the original Golden Arches, which are somewhat different from the Golden Arches that we know today. Well, it's pretty interesting when you mention the Golden Arches in your piece that the origins, it seemed like it would, the Golden Arches were there because they resembled an M, but that's not really the story, right? 
No, that's what we all assume. But um, they were actually started out as two arches, one arch on either side of the building. And it came about because at the time you didn't have television advertising. And so uh, you ha- the customers had to, to drive past and notice the building. The building had to be essentially the architecture had to be the billboard and the advertising and the branding for, for the, the company. So they, they got together with an architect um, from California called Stanley Clark Meston, and they designed this, this golden circle design. And he thought, is this, is this going to be hokey? I don't know how, if this is going to work. He was really skeptical of it. But they said, no, this, this should work. And it wasn't until about five years later that they said, wait a minute, two arches make an M. And so they redesigned it. <laughs> but Phoenix was, the, Phoenix was the first one to have that design. And then they redesigned the original uh, McDonald's location, the, the barbecue one in, uh, that was in San Bernardino. And Kurt, when you mentioned in the piece as well, and, and I'm not sure if there are specifics about this question I'm going to ask you. So if you don't know, obviously that's fine. But anyone who heads past that corner of Central and Indian School you mentioned knows the original McDonald's is not there anymore. Do you know that because of the history, because it was the first franchise, was it ever considered for any kind of historic designation or anything? Not to my knowledge. It was, I mean, there's very little information about it. And even when it was um, dismantled, it was like in the, in the 1960s, but no one really knows much about it. It wasn't considered a big deal. Um, the, the one in, in uh, San Bernardino, and there's a, there's a couple others that are considered uh, for historic designation that are preserved. But the Phoenix one, no, <laughs> it's, it's long gone. You also have a couple of fun tidbits in there that not only did Arizona have the McDonald's with the first golden arches, it also has the only one without the arches? Without the golden arches, oh, the, yes. Yeah. So um, so that one is in Sedona. And because Sedona has such strict regulations in terms of what buildings need to look like so that they fit in well with the city and, and keep the, the city beautiful, um, when McDonald's decided to open a, a store there in 1993, they they had to opt for turquoise arches because those are the, they they fit in with the sky and the McDonald's itself is sort of a burnt sienna color that's quite scenic that fits in so it's it's quite uh, it's it's well photographed by many travelers because it's the only one without the golden arches and also I thought it was fun I think Marshall Trimble is the one quoted uh, the chain's first drive through is also in Arizona in Sierra Vista how did that get started. That was funny because, as you know, uh, Fort Huachuca is located uh, in, in Sierra Vista, and there was a rule that the military couldn't wear their military fatigues in civilian locations. And so it was a hassle for them to have to leave the base and then go home, change clothes, and then come back to McDonald's to buy their Big Macs and things. So the manager decided, you know, he, there was a business opportunity. So he just knocked a, wall, a hole in his wall <laughs> and, and uh, created a drive-thru. And it was the first drive-thru um, for, the, for the entire company. For some reason, both McDonald Brothers and Ray Kroc had resisted the drive-thru model um, because they, they wanted to brand themselves as a sort of self-service model. So it was kind of fun. Carrie Duane Cornelius has indeed written a fun article for Phoenix Magazine, the August issue. It's called Mac Daddy about the Phoenix connection with the McDonald's burger chain. Carrie Duane, thanks for the time today. Thanks very much, Steve. 
And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to Bruce Drummond and Jimmy Jenkins for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations about the DNC with Art Hamilton and Bob Grossfeld, or Latino voting with Hector Tobar, or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.